Uh, well, today, um, I'm excited. We're going to jump into a new series uh, in an Old Testament book. Uh, it's really the second half of one book. Uh, in the original Hebrew Bible, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually a single book. Um, and then in our new modern English translations, it got separated into two. But they really, um, they really are about a, a, a particular period in Israel's history uh, that takes place over about a hundred years uh, is the span of time uh, between uh, the beginning of Ezra and the close of Nehemiah. Uh, and, it, and it's a time in which Israel's kingdom um, has collapsed due to the failing of Israel uh, to maintain its uh, loyalty to Yahweh. God's warning to Israel through Moses was, listen, I have given you a covenant. I'm a, we're, you are in a covenant with me. He has given, I have given you a law which is meant to be parameters by which you are in intimacy with me. And Israel's continual surrender, often under the leadership of, of a very mixed bag of kings, not many good ones, uh, and even the good ones were deeply flawed individuals. Keep in mind that the monarchy of Israel was not what God intended. Israel demanded uh, that they be given a king like the lands around them, and God was frustrated, and he said, fine, you want, you want your kings? I'll, get, I'll give you kings. Saul, the first king, fail. God chooses David. Was David a failure or a success? Yes. <laughs> Mixed bag. Not awesome results, because I think, once again, God, in his, all of his wisdom, it's like, that God in his sovereignty allows us just enough freedom to hang ourselves. Uh, you know, it's like the, like there's a, it's, it's, it's what I call freedom within parameters. And God's covenant has never been in question. The children of Israel may question God's covenant uh, with them, but it was them who abandoned the covenant, not God. And Ezra and Nehemiah are a reminder that God is faithful to his covenant. For Israel, after the, the last king failed, remember, Israel split into two nations. It was the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Uh, Israel collapses first, Judah second, carried off into captivity by, uh, into the empire of Babylon. And now, Babylon has been conquered by a new empire, Persia, um, beginning with, the, with King Cyrus. Uh, and the kingdom of Persia, um, in its wisdom, sees that the foreign lands that they have now control of, in order to maintain the control of the empire, that it was in their best interest to allow the lands that they have conquered to continue to worship their gods. And it's a, it's a land of, of polytheism, so that's not that big of a stretch, but it's, it's actually more of a political move to maintain peace within the empire. Israel was a crucial uh, player in, this, in these political goals because Israel separated Babylon, uh, which is where the kingdom uh, separated this Persian empire from an enemy that was constantly at war, which is Egypt. Keeping, keeping the Jew, allowing the Jews to go back and reestablish themselves and rebuild their temple, which is what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. Cyrus sends the first group. And there are three key players, really, uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. The first two, it's really two, a pair. It's Zerubbabel, which is the last kind of uh, heir to the throne, who doesn't become king again. He's kind of like a governor. Uh, and the kingdom now is a part of the Persian kingdom. Uh, so this is Israel's new reality and would continue to be Israel's reality all the way until Israel became a nation again <laughs> after World War II, which is an interesting thing because they became, they became a nation by force, uh, uh, which is not how they were able to go back into the land in this particular moment in history. Uh, but they go back as a part of the Persian Empire, but are allowed to reestablish their worship, rebuild their temple, um, rebuild their wall. So Zerubbabel and then the priest Joshua um, Jeshua uh, are the first players, and they get back into their into Jerusalem, and they experience opposition. Chapter six: about sixty years goes by. The temples, the rebuilding of the temples, begun, and then Ezra comes in, 
and that follows up the rest of Ezra as he helps continue to establish the temple and reestablish worship within the temple. And then Nehemiah is the next player, and it ends in frustration, opposition. And then Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer after Cyrus, is Xerxes, uh, second king of Persia, and then, and then Artaxerxes, um, who, is, uh, who Nehemiah works as the royal cupbearer. The world cupbearer is an interesting thing because the cupbearer sounds like a silly job, but it's actually a job of incredible importance and intimacy with the Persian king. It shows God's providential hand. He is at work and he is staying true to his covenantal promises. And of course, there is a Jewish man who is close to the heart of the king. And the cupbearer was meant to take the cup of wine and before the king ever drank it, he would drink it to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So he would have to be one that was deeply trusted. Uh, not only that, he was also one that was meant to bring comfort to the king, be basically one who offered wisdom, insight. And Nehemiah is an unbelievable leader who actually has the courage to ask the king to send him back to Israel when he hears, or back to Jerusalem when he hears that the wall is still in ruins, that there's opposition to the temple worship, and he says, send me back so that I can, under your decree, re help reestablish Israel's worship of the one true God, Yahweh. Um, and so that's kind of the, the setting that we're dealing with, but here's why I picked this book, why I felt, I should say, why I felt like the Lord led us as a community toward this book is because I believe this book parallels what is God's people's history throughout all of its history, which is, which is rebellion, enslavement, exodus, rebuilding, and reform or revival. I mean, this is, again and again, we see this pattern. And Nehemiah has many of the same patterns that we see in Exodus. The children of Israel have been enslaved. They're part of the Babylonian Empire. They're taken into, into captivity. Now they're able to go back, but each time it's kind of broken down. They're not gonna return to the glory of when Solomon was king or when David was king. Now they are going to be a people in a, in a place that God has said is my place, but they are going to be a people under the rule of another, but they are allowed to reestablish their worship. And very much like us today, we now are the pilgrims of dispersion. Uh, the children of Israel are a people that are fascinating even through human history. Uh, the diaspora is always the reminder. There is no other nation in human history that has maintained a national identity without a land <laughs> um, for as long as Israel did. I mean, it's incredible. It's an incredible reality, but we have to keep in mind that even the church, there's a parallel reality that the, our loyalty is to Jesus and his kingdom. And that kingdom is in direct opposition to the kingdom that we are a part of as Americans. Uh, because much of the kingdom of men, it doesn't matter if it's America, it doesn't matter, pick any country in the world, there are powers at play that are in direct opposition to what it means to be a Christian. And the question of how do we function uh, under the rule of a world that is under the sway of the wicked one and maintain covenant loyalty or faithfulness to, to Jesus. One of the things that we just experienced through the pandemic is what I would call a great shaking and an absolute reduction of the numbers within the church. There is a massive exodus during the pandemic uh, from the church. You guys know that Door of Hope uh, was not immune to this because you're sitting in a church that literally the weekend before, door, before the pandemic, the lockdown started, we were 1,200 adults, just adults between two services, packed, actually asking the question, do we need to go back to three services? And literally within two years, reduced to less than half. And now we're in a period of rebuilding. And it's really easy to become quite discouraged by that, even though I was incredibly discouraged when we were so big that it was impossible to shepherd the people. And all I did was feel like I was failing as a lead pastor constantly because I don't think that mega churches are what God ever intended. And I definitely know that celebrity 
pastors are not what God intended. Shepherds should be shepherd servants. Um, it's an uncomfortable thing to even be elevated above you on a stage uh, because I think that the shepherd is meant to be the chief servant. Uh, and that's what we at least aim for as a church, that it's not about a personality other than Jesus. And we are gathered around him. And we as leaders are meant to be cheerleaders of Jesus and servants to you. <laughs> and so, uh, so I believe that we are in a time of rebuilding, but rebuilding also requires reflection. And reflection, when it's done honestly, will inevitably lead to repentance. And so we're going to begin today in Nehemiah chapter 1. And what I want to start off with, because this first chapter is before this incredible man, and he is a man of decisive action. Uh, Nehemiah is a really fun book because uh, most of it is a first-person account of like what he did. And I mean, the guy was like, he was an incredible leader, but he was a leader that was also, he was decisive, but he was also marked by humility and his decisiveness flowed out of his intimacy with God. And we see this in chapter one. I'm a person of quick action, gut level response. I kind of always related to D.L. Moody. Uh, Moody said, I know lots of men that pray on their knees, you know, hours every day, and I'm moved by them. I'm a man who would prefer to pray as I go. <laughs> um, and, and I love that Nehemiah shows us that if we want to be decisive people of action, it actually, we have to begin with the thing that seems the most counterintuitive. Before we speak or do anything, we should actually ask the question, have we asked God what he wants us to do? And have we actually taken seriously the, the, uh, the offer for us to enter into the heavenly council and to participate in God's great plans for humanity? And what we see in this first chapter is before Nehemiah does anything, he gets on his knees and he repents and he fasts and he intercedes on behalf of a rebellious people who God is staying faithful to in his covenant promises. And it's a beautiful thing. And I think there's much we can learn from it. I want to begin with a quote from Jacques Ellul around this concept of prayer because I call this message first things first. Jacques Ellul was a great French Christian thinker, philosopher, uh, anthropologist, uh, and high churchman um, who lived during, uh, during a time of Europe's, one of Europe's ugliest histories, and that was the rise of the Nazi regime. As a Frenchman, he was actually sent by his university to observe one of the, the first Nazi rallies where Hitler spoke, and he came back and wrote an article for, for his university, for a French paper, that said, fascism, the son of liberalism. And he argued that the rise of the, of the Nazi regime was due to the liberalism that had taken hold of Germany, um, which is funny because liberals are often calling conservatives fascists, but uh, Alul saw that they, they were intertwined. <laughs> they, they, one cannot be disconnected from the other. But what I love about the book um, that he wrote called um, Presence in the Modern World, which is his kind of great theological treatise, at the close, he wrote this at the close of World War II, and he brings this great indictment against the church in its failure to do first things first when, uh, when Nazi Germany began its attack on surrounding Europe. He says, this is why in facing up to Hitler, if it is true that he represented a satanic power, that is what the church kind of universally believed in Europe, there was first a spiritual battle to wage. Prayer is what should have been decisive, but we no longer have confidence in the extraordinary power of prayer. Prayer was the exorcism that drives out demons by the Holy Spirit, the armor of faith. It is quite possible that if Christians had truly acted according to these means, while everyone else was thinking of material warfare, which was also necessary, so he's not trying to, he's not taking this big pacifist position, although I would say that Alul probably landed, uh, landed there toward a nonviolent response, but he, he also acknowledged that this was a regime that was a real threat, but what he's asking is what is the church's response? What should have been the church's first response? And he says, or simply of blessing the guns 
and he argues, and then he kind of blows this, this section out, is that the church was quick to bless the guns of the soldiers before, but he said, before it did that, it should have gotten on its knees and prayed that God would prevent the necessity of that many young men having to die by shooting one another. Uh, and he's like, we, we were so quick to basically put our men in the trenches and pray blessing over them when we should have gotten on our knees and begged that God intervened. Um, and he poses this question. The result would not have been this horrifying triumph of the Hitlerian spirit that we see now throughout the world. In other words, he says, we may have won the war tangibly at a moment in time, the Hitler regime has fallen, but the spirit of Hitler would survive the war and continue to plague Europe well after. And, and I think we're still seeing the results of that, which is, scapegoatism, finding someone to blame for our problems, uh, the violence that continues to plague society, uh, which has not been diminished due to all of our advancements, all of our technological advancements. We are still a people that are willing to take one another out if it means our side winning, whatever side that may be, whatever ideology that might be. Um, the realities of sin are unavoidable. And one of the things that Alul is so good at um, is recognizing that the rise of the technological age and globalization makes it even more difficult to be a Christian today than it was 2,000 years ago. Not because sin is any different, but because technology has allowed sin to become more intrusive. We have truly become um, uh, interconnected in a way that we have never been before and that means that we're more connected to one another's brokenness than we've ever been before and this is why he says sin is growing increasingly collective he has two things that I think is really important and I look at our current moment where the church has been shaken and there's been a massive abandonment of the faith is is that we have forgotten these two important realities as the church has sought to soften its message to appeal to modern sensibility. It is diminished, instead of recognizing sin for what it is, a rebellion against God's rule and a rejection of God's grace, we just continue to diminish the, the parameters that God puts upon our lives so that we can experience the most freedom. If we just stop calling sin, sin, then it's not real, right? And all we find is that the more we live by this idea that everything is acceptable, everything is right. The individual's autonomy and, and ability to define for themselves what is right, what is wrong, and who their identity is, is the right path forward. But it's not leading to greater freedom, it's leading to greater insanity, instability, and more violence, I would argue, and ultimately more tyranny. Uh, our freedom will always be found in parameters, in boundaries. Without boundaries, nothing's safe, nothing's safe. If every key opened the door to your house, your house would not be safe. <laughs> uh, and so I think that, that this is something that we need to understand, and I believe Nehemiah speaks to what I think are current problems because they're universal problems, they're historical problems, and on this side of eternity, they will continue to be a problem, and they will actually increase before the return of Jesus, and we as a church need to understand that. So, let's begin. First of all, Nehemiah's identification with the rebellion of Israel. This is a profound thing. God raises up this leader, uh, but he is a leader who very much, I think, even picturing forward the reality of something that we see from Genesis to Revelation, which is the representative man, the one for the many. Uh, he, the willingness to identify with a broken group of people um, as a mediation between God and sinful humanity. And we see that most fully, obviously, in Jesus. He is truly the one for the many, and the many and the one. But here we see it in Nehemiah. And it says in Nehemiah 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, um, it says, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, this is the 20th year of, of Artaxerxes' rule, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about 
the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. There's incredible opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, the worship. If you want to go back and read Ezra, I would encourage you to do so. Um, but you'll see this. This is the pattern of Ezra and Nehemiah. God moves upon individuals to bring a restoration of right worship. Uh, and in every step of the way, there is roadblocks. And I think that this is the pattern of the Christian life. The moment you step into the victorious life of Jesus is the moment you will step in to battle. Uh, I would say if, if we are not experiencing any kind of spiritual attack, that means we are not any kind of spiritual threat. And that's a problem about us. <laughs> um, in fact, the more we walk in accordance to the ways of Jesus, the more we take seriously holiness and repentance and confession and we take seriously the call to be witnesses to Jesus in a place like Portland, I promise you we will enter into serious warfare. And I think that we have already begun to taste some of that, but I think it will come even more fully as God does great, the, in fact, in the early days of Door of Hope when so many were coming to faith, the spiritual attack was so great that it threw me into an eight month uh, anxiety spell that was a combination of both uh, uh, sin I was unaware of, uh, genetic dispositions toward anxiety, and then just Satan doesn't play fair. <laughs> it's like I would say he takes advantage of our weaknesses, and, he, and I promise you if you're down, that is when he will kick you the hardest. And so that, the realization, but during that whole time that I was under all this anxiety, People were getting saved, constantly getting saved. So many, I mean, hundreds of people got baptized in the early years uh, as a confession of faith. And, and that, which is not uncommon for uh, when God's blessing is on a new church plant, there's something exciting. It tends to draw, that's uh, even Keller, um, may rest in peace uh, and enjoy the presence of Jesus. Uh, he always talked about the best way to see evangelistic explosion is to consistently plant churches because that usually is the first few years of a church's life that will often mark its most evangelistic season. I think that the church should always, it should consistently be renewing that, that commitment to be a people that, that, are, that recognize that they exist for the good of those outside the walls. It's the moment we forget that is the moment we're in, we're, we're in trouble. But notice what he says here, uh, and I think that this is such an important um, asked with my screen just went blank. I was like, oh, my iPad just died. I'm going to teach this totally from memory. Um, this happened before, and if it actually did, I wouldn't tell you. Um, <laughs> Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates are burned with fire. That will be a, a theme that comes up again. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The news has come. Nehemiah feels a burden for the people. I always say that one of the most important things we understand, identification with Jesus inevitably leads to identification with broken people. In fact, you can't say that I identify myself with the person of Jesus and ignore your neighbor. Your neighbor is anyone and everyone that you come in contact with. That is why for us as Christians, one of the things that happened, I think actually hurt the, the church so bad during the pandemic is first we were told we couldn't gather. We're not allowed to gather. Then in isolation, instead of getting on our knees and praying for the, the tensions that were at play politically and then racially, uh, and, then, and then on top of that, even psychologically, being all of a sudden in a world where we're told we're, that it's dangerous to be around other people, which is why it was so important for us to remember God's first declaration over man in the garden before sin has even entered the story. The first thing he says is it's not good that man be alone. <laughs> but we didn't, adhere, we, didn't, we didn't pay attention to that. And we kind of liked the privacy at first. But then the privacy became isolation and the isolation became a breeding ground for radicalization. And radicalization is we became, we became uh, just inundated with 
angry voices from opposing forces, which are all under one force, which is the devil. He loved all of it. He is much of he was much of a voice behind the left as he was behind the right and everything in between because all he's interested in is you not being focused on Jesus, you not turning to him, you not relying upon him. And so now, instead of the pastor's voice or your community's voice, it became the social media voices, which is filled with new prophets and new priestesses that are giving us their, their ideas about what is necessary. And it was a call to revolution, but it was a revolution that would only lead to more bitterness and violence. It had nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus, none of it. And we have to ask the question, well, what did we do? We allowed ourselves to pick a team. And the picking of a team led to frustration. And then all of a sudden, now I'm getting bombarded from people that are like, um, you know, I don't want to see us, you know, become woke or too left. And, uh, and so, you know, we need to stop wearing masks and oppose the government because they're, f- they're taking away our freedom. And then there's the other side, it's like, you need to st- op- start up a racial reconciliation panel. I remember I was a- asked to do that by four white people who wanted to be on that panel. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, I'm like, and what I said to both sides is, yeah, no, we're not gonna do any of those things. So that's not what we're gonna do. And, and you know what? Both sides get mad. And you know what? Both sides left. It was the worst is when people are like, I'm leaving Door of Hope. And I'm like, where are you going? Door of Hope Northeast. I'm like, that's still Door of Hope. Like, it's actually a part of Door of Hope. Like, like it, there's not a left Door of Hope and a right Door of Hope. Like, that's, that's, this is wrong. But you know what I'm talking about. And you saw it. We saw it. I never, I've never used Facebook in my life. Thank God. I, I was actually shocked at people that I know really well at the church who are different human beings on Facebook. It's like they're all like aggressive and like political views. And just, I mean, I, there were friends. I had to tell them like, don't forward me your ideas on this. I'm not, I actually will not read them because it's not beneficial for me. It's just creating stress. All I know is that whatever's happening in the world, my responsibility and the church's responsibility remains the same. Are we continuing to point people to Jesus? Are we continuing to point people to Jesus? And so this reality is what happens when things become rough. I think often our default setting is not to stop what we're doing and ask God to help us or even to take ownership of how we might be participating in the problem but instead, we listen to the voices of the world which point us toward our scapegoats, the people that are the real problem, when in actuality, wherever you are, sin is there in the world. Wherever you are, sin is there. So it's not their problem, it's our problem. And we are called to be intercessors for the world. And sometimes we're so self-absorbed and we're so broken and so divided that we don't even recognize the unbelievable privilege it is to be a conduit of grace in another person's life because we're so busy navel-gazing at our own, what we feel are inadequacies or the unfair realities of our lives. And, and, and the enemy would love to keep you in a place of self-despair, self-focus, and ultimately, I just met with someone and it was so striking to me. It was like when we buy into false narratives and the false narrative is nobody likes me. Nobody wants to know me. And you tell yourself that narrative long enough, I promise you it will become true. Because you have listened to a lie and when you listen to a lie, it doesn't take long before we embody that lie. And in the embodying of that lie, the lie actually becomes reality. And that is so terrifying because it's actually not true and yet we can embody a non-truth to the point where it becomes actually the experience of the person that believes the lie. And this is why as a community of faith, before we identify with this or that ideology or this or that cause, let's ask the question, are we fully identified with Jesus? And not the Jesus of the multitude of voices out there in the world, but the Jesus of the Bible 
the God-man who identified himself fully with the brokenness of humanity, who is called the son of sorrows because he didn't just come to uh, enter into what it means to be a human being. He enters into our most broken part, the part that has caused all the problems. He has identified not just with our humanity, but with our sin. And I love this because this is what we see in Nehemiah. He says, when he heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I think of James chapter four, verses eight to 10, one of the most comforting verses. Everybody knows this verse, draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. What's the verse after? <laughs> so classic. Um, <laughs> uh, it's cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, yes. Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You're like, well, I'm not gonna memorize that part. That's a big bummer, isn't it? That's just like a draw near to God and he'll draw to, near to you and then it's like, and you suck. <laughs> that's like what it feels like. But that's not the point. What it's saying, what James is actually saying, because it actually says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Other words, you can't draw near to God who is the light and not be revealed, not be unveiled. You see, you want to be close to God, I want to be close to God, but do we really want to be close to God? Because to come into the light means you are exposed. And to be exposed is meant to reveal that no matter how close you think you are to Jesus, no matter how mature you are, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, no matter what you've done for Jesus, you are still a part of a human race that is plagued every minute of every day by a collective rebellion against God's rule. And the only thing that separates you from the sinner who does not know Jesus is that you are simply the sinner that said yes to his yes while they have yet to do that. And it is our responsibility to do all that we can to witness to the fact that that invitation is for them as well. And the fact is, is that intimacy with Jesus will always lead to a deeper and deeper revelation of our own brokenness. This is why God can do everything with a broken heart and nothing with a divided heart. A divided heart is trying to keep Jesus Lord and at the same time still be your own Lord. And that's not how it works. That's why I reject God and country as two sides of the same, two wings of the same plane. That's BS. It, there, there is no two sides. There's one kingdom and one king and we are first and foremost his subjects. And wherever he has placed us in the world and whatever, whatever the political system is that, that's at play, our responsibility does not change. Faithfulness to witness to King Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I would always pray that God would keep us in a, under a government that gives us the freedom to worship freely. That's a beautiful thing. But I promise you that the kingdoms of men and America is no different. America is not the new Israel. <laughs> uh, is the kingdoms of men come and go, but the kingdom of God is forever. And what are we gonna do? What do we wanna return? This is the whole idea. What, what, was, what were the children of Israel? What happened in Israel uh, when, the king, when the temple was built up? The new generation were pumped. They get to worship God again. But the old generation that saw the glory of Solomon's temple, they wept because it did not even compare to its beauty. Because this is our natural tendency. It's like if only we could return back to this point. If only Door of Hope could go back to 2010. I mean, Darcy and I, we have to fight that. Like, oh man, remember when we used to, it, it was just so sweet and it was just so raw and there was so much excitement and, and you start to just wish you could go back and when you recognize you can't go back, you just get discouraged and you're constantly comparing it to the glory days. It's like Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite. Like he just, and that, that character, you know why that character is so popular? Because it's so accurate. Of like we attach glory to a particular season in our lives and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to relive that thing 
which never is actually possible. You can never repeat what has already come. You can only repeat the principles that actually bring us back into the moment. Door of Hope can never be what it was in 2009. Portland isn't what it was in 2009, so it cannot be what it was. But it can be something, it can be, it can be something great if we are a people that recognize the necessity of God's rule. And this is why we need to begin with a heart of prayer. Prayer is one of the greatest untapped gifts given to us as a community of faith. And I have felt this more deeply lately than ever before. And it's because prayer is the opportunity to actually enter in to the heavenly council and be a participant in God's redemptive purposes. And I think that this is something that is so beautiful. I mourned and fasted and prayed. First of all, this shows Nehemiah, his focus is not himself. His focus is God's glory and God's covenantal people. And he wants to make a difference, but he recognizes if I'm going to be a decisive leader, I, I don't have the time to not get on my knees. You know, Martin Luther was known to pray the Lord's Prayer for three hours a day. And he was once asked, if you actually ever looked at the amount of material that that man pumped out, uh, it's insane. Um, and I know it's a different time with less distraction and all those things, but I would also argue that Martin Luther, if he was to be diagnosed today, I often wonder if he was bipolar, um, uh, for he was notorious for his manic seasons as well as his depressed seasons. And still, he wrote basically commentaries on every book of the Bible, uh, endless diatribes on works and grace and faith and justification, endless teaching, and yet he had enough time to pray three hours a day to the Lord's Prayer. And when he was asked, how did he get so much done and pray that much? He said, he goes, I don't, he goes, I, I don't, I can't afford to not do this. It's how I get everything done. It was the secret to his productivity, not a hindrance to it. Because prayer is entering into God's space in a way that actually seems, it seems at times for people that have truly embraced it to almost stretch time in a way. It's entering into that perpetual rest that is Jesus. I think that there is a, there is a sacredness to this, to this an invitation, therefore enter boldly into the throne room of grace. But notice here, the prayer is marked by mourning and fasting. I'm heartbroken over the sin of my people. I'm heartbroken over the sin in my own life. I'm heartbroken over the ruins of our holy place. And I know that if I want to make a difference, the first thing I need to do is be still and know that he is God. And so he fasts. And what's the purpose of fasting? Fasting is a time in which you can put aside the flesh. You can say no to the appetites of the flesh. Hunger is one of the natural appetites. It reminds us that our body needs food. And food is necessary for living. Thirst is necessary, water is necessary for living. Hunger and thirst are the natural appetites that actually give us the ability to move through our days. To deny yourself food, to deny yourself water, is to basically say no to the flesh because it's a recognition that, Lord, I, do I ever hunger and thirst for you the way that I hunger for a meal or thirst for a drink? It's a time to replace the comforts of life and enter into and participate in the sufferings of the world as, as conduits of grace. And that conduit of grace begins actually in the secrecy of the prayer room before it becomes the action in, in a public space. And I think that this is a beautiful reminder that if we want to be utilized powerfully by God, we must spend much time with God. There's just no getting around it. I think we're intimidated by prayer because we think, think prayer is, is the, the ability to maintain a monologue for more than five minutes. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is a conversation with the living God. And it is sometimes nothing more than gutturals, groanings, 
tears wept, broken words, incomprehensible sentences. But that's, that's okay, because what he's looking at is the heart. And God, has, and he is happy when his kids just look up. <laughs> that's, the, that's the fact. Look what he goes on to say. He moves from this identification with the sinfulness and the brokenness of Israel and pauses to seek God's face. And this is what he asks. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 says, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great, awesome God who keeps the covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. Notice, he begins with God's character. He calls God on his character. He, the, the pursuit of God on behalf of his brothers and sisters is driven by his belief that God is who he declared himself to be. We've been in captivity. This does not move the fact that God is good. You know, one of the great uh, necessities of, of modern thinking is the reminder that one of the things people say, I can't believe in a God who allows human suffering. But if you guys ever read Brothers Karamazov, um, let me save you the anguish and give you the most important part. Um, the, the, some of you are like, I love that book. Good, good for you. Um, I've read that book. I've read it twice. And it's, it's work. It's real, real, archaic Russian work. However, it's profound and its insights into human nature and relationship and belief in God. And there's a, the, the, there's a character named Alosha who is the Christ-like figure in the, in the book, who's a, who is uh, an Orthodox priest, Eastern, uh, Russian Orthodox priest, and, or monk. And his brother, Ivan, is an atheist, and he's embittered. And Ivan says, I cannot believe in a God where, and, he, and Dostoevsky brilliantly took the headlines from the news in this, uh, in, in, from St. Petersburg and Moscow of the time of horrible things that happened. There was a child that literally was locked in a closet by a parent and starved to death. And Dostoevsky utilized real headlines of real travesties in, as part of Ivan's dialogue. He says, I can't, I can't worship a God who would allow a child to starve to death in a closet. I can't do this or that. And, and if you've ever read the book, you know, he goes on to give one of the most famous passages probably in literature, which is called the Grand Inquisitor, um, which is a question of if Jesus appeared during the Spanish Inquisition, um, would they just re-kill him? Uh, because, because they've discovered that we don't want a mystical Christ. We would, I'd rather have real bread. The people would rather have real bread than spiritual bread. So the best thing we can do is just put you back to death because we're, we're fine. We don't need you anymore. But the real point is the conversation between Ivan and Elosha. And Elosha, Ivan says this, I will not worship a God who allows people to hurt. And Ivan's miserable and self-absorbed and does nothing to actually lessen the pain of the world around him. And Elosha says, I believe God is good and I do not need to understand why people suffer, which is why I'm willing to enter into suffering and your refusal to believe in God because you think he causes suffering is why you do nothing to stop any suffering at all. Understand the strange, strange understanding is that Elosha's commitment to God's goodness allows him to fully enter into the mystery of suffering and participate in it. Ivan's unwillingness to separate God from human suffering and to make God responsible for suffering actually renders him impotent in his ability to stop his own suffering or do anything about anyone else's. It's a profound, it's a profound insight into, the, into mystery. That's why I would say I don't want to understand, I don't need to understand why we suffer. What I need to understand and what I care deeply about, has God done something about it? And that's why the cross will always be a picture of God's willingness to enter into the brokenness of humanity and make it his own. This is why we can trust that Jesus truly is our sympathetic high priest. But this vision of God happened, was already in play before Jesus even walked on the earth. The first thing God declares over himself, a passage that is quoted more than any passage in the entire Bible is 
God's revelation from Revelation or from Exodus 32 um, to Moses of his own character. The Lord, the Lord, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And this is exactly what Nehemiah claims. And this is the thing. Notice, what's the great passage in Romans chapter 2? It is the kindness of God that leads to what? Repentance. He claims God's goodness, his love, the covenant love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servant, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. There are parallels to Exodus that I think are worth noting. Moses is a mediator between God and Israel. Nehemiah now stepping into that mediation role. But this mediation role is also marked by his confession. God, you are good in your presence. I know that I must hold responsibility as a participant in the rebellion of your people against you. And I pray according to your character that you would forgive us, that you would remember your covenant promises. You remember when Moses was on top of Sinai receiving the law from God, the children of Israel got tired of waiting for Moses. They're like, as for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. And so Aaron, we want you to make us another Elohim, another God. So he takes the gold. I love it, his excuse too, when Moses comes down, he's like, he's like, the people gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and this is what came out. <laughs> so it's an amazing classic, like it also parallels to, there's what Tim Mackey calls these, these uh, hyperlinks where there's just these continued repeated patterns. Every pattern in scripture is probably found in Genesis one through 11. It's just repeated again and again and again. And here we have that pattern, a mediation. But one of the things that Tim pointed out, um, uh, Ian and I just went away for a week um, in-depth study of the book of Exodus at Mount Angel with Tim Mackey and 40 other pastors. How would we preach through Exodus? And he was teaching through the, the section of Moses in his interaction with God when Israel has the idol. And he says, the children of Israel have sinned greatly against me. I'm gonna destroy all of them and I'm gonna start over with you. And he says, now, and essentially it says, um, uh, it, the, the Hebrew word, it's like, it kind of sounds like he's saying, the way it's been translated is like, now give me some space. <laughs> Let me cool off. But it's not actually the appropriate translation of the Hebrew word. That, that, that call for space or give me rest is, is he saying, if, give me rest is not let me cool off, but Moses, what are you going to do about my anger? And what Tim points out that is so profound is that that is an invitation, a direct invitation from God to enter into the problem and be a participant in its solution. It speaks of the power of intercessory prayer, that God is inviting us into the heavenly council, if you will, that we actually have the ability to make a difference with prayer. Some people hold this idea that, no, God is the unmoved mover. Where does it say that in the Bible? Aristotle said that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible never says that God is unmoved. It says that he's unbelievably moved. He is the moved mover. He is the, the living God who is jealous and angry over sin and loves with an everlasting love. No, he is unchanging in his character, his purposes and his plans, but his sovereignty doesn't mean that he's unmoved. One of the attributes that's been applied by the church that has far more to do with Greek philosophy than it does with anything in the Bible is the idea of God's impassibility. There's one passage that says, I am the Lord your God, and I change not. That doesn't mean that he doesn't allow human beings to participate. It's saying, I don't change. My character is consistent. My plans are consistent. My purposes are consistent. And he is sovereign, which means not that he's unmoving. His sovereignty means that he's absolutely free to do whatever he wants in accordance with his character, his purpose, and plans. And if God so decrees to limit his own sovereignty in a way that allows us to participate 
in his redemptive story and he is God so he has the ability to fulfill his redemptive story with or without us but still gives us the opportunity to participate in it that is a profound reality it is a profound reality and it's one that should not be taken lightly and it's one that should be taken seriously we don't just pray to God because we need it we pray to God because God has ordained us to participate in his redemptive purposes he does the saving he does the drawing but he does it through us as his witnesses he does it through us through our prayer and our petition on behalf of our brothers that's why we need to get away from self-centered self-focused prayer it's always about what i want what i need why don't we come to god and claim his character on behalf of those that can't pray for themselves and i think that this is what we see what we see nehemiah doing the other thing that i think we need to recognize here is nehemiah's willingness to acknowledge and proclaim his own sin i think of some of the greatest communicators of the gospel in our current age and how rarely you will hear a pastor from the pulpit acknowledge his arrogance his missteps his lust his struggles that's why i like to tell you guys you guys i can't even get out of my house without murdering someone in my mind i mean it's a it's i'm not saying that to be funny i'm saying that because i believe that the responsibility in this new age of rebuilding is that the church has got to do away with this pretense of presenting to the world an ideal that it itself cannot keep and the confession here is a confession that is not just to god but it's recorded for us which means that confession to god alone is not really confession according to god's design because we cannot know god apart from our participation in others lives that is why it's never about you and jesus it's about you and jesus in concern for your neighbor who is next to you in front of you behind you and what the world wants to see they don't care if you never swear they don't care if you tithe every week they don't care the world does not i didn't care about any of those things when i came to jesus i just need to know that there was a god in heaven who loved me and that there was someone that could save me from the mess that was my existence that could save me from my own pride and self-destructive behavior i just need to know that there was a god who loved me in spite of the fact that i felt like it is impossible that anybody could truly love me and my absolute self-loathing that was hidden behind kind of as in the words of that wonderful song by player baby come back false bravado <laughs> if you know that song that's a great line I, I just i've sang it every year for years i had a false bravado i lived behind the front of self-confidence but really it was i i played behind a mask because i hated myself and i didn't think that i was worth loving which was on the fast track to destroying my marriage and destroying everything but it was seeing real authentic grace shown to me by a group of believers who were patient with me and my rawness and my lack of understanding i wasn't i was not interested I, I would never even have asked someone like so now that i'm a christian what, how much money should i give like i didn't even i didn't even know that was a thing I was so excited when I got saved, the first thing I said is, you're not gonna believe it, I just put my faith in effing Jesus. I mean, that's like how, like just the sheer rawness and the simplicity of childlike faith. The confession is key to real witness. And it's not just a confession in some sort of vagary, it's like real, like we are sharing our burdens with one another in a way that we are, we are actually witnessing to, the, to the, the world that there's a God in heaven who already knows that we're a mess and loves us in spite of that. It's what makes the gospel earthy. We're constantly trying to make it unreachable, overly heavenly when it, we forget that it's about heaven meeting us in the dirt and the brokenness of human existence. This is what I love about confession. And finally, his intercession. This is a confidence that leads to boldness. 
Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, speaking of the king, um, Artaxerxes. And here's the thing is that he says, I was a cupbearer to the king is the close of this powerful passage. But notice he asked for success. What is the success he wants? Success in Nehemiah's mind is putting himself in harm's way by going and being a, a helper or a servant to a people that are under oppression as they are trying to re-engage with real worship. So for success for him is not give me favor with the king so I can experience more material blessing. Success for him is God actually empowering him to surrender the comfort of his role and enter actually into the oppression of his people. I want success in the midst of the difficulty. I want your presence and your rest and your power as I step out in faith into the darkness of what is trying to oppose your people from worshiping you. That's a different kind of success. That's not a prosperity gospel, is it? This isn't God as a cosmic Santa Claus who's here to give us everything we ever wanted. This is a reminder that when we come into the light of who God is and he reveals the brokenness in us and we actually surrender to his authority, his power, that we actually have birthed within us new desires that are so contrary to the world's desires that we can actually be people like Mother Teresa who said she saw the face of Jesus every time she cleaned, she cleaned the leper's face. She would see Jesus in the depths of suffering, and that's when she felt most alive. That was when she felt the closest to the Lord. That's not the desires of this world. That isn't this, you know, even our spiritual gurus on social media are still, you ever notice that, how weird it is? You're like, like, like yoga gurus who are all about meditation and being all Zen, and it'll be like a video of them doing their like yoga or meditation practices in Palm Springs, and then you realize, wait a minute, how did you film this? Who's, this is a production. This isn't, this isn't an entering into the suffering of the world. This is a, this is a straight up self-promotion of presenting yourself as some sort of spiritually attuned guru when you have a crew of 15 people like filming you looking awesome while you, while you meditate in the, in the desert heat. I'm not interested. I want the grittiness of a life where the heart is pure and the hands and feet are dirty. And that's what Nehemiah is preparing for. And this is why, first things first, if we wanna be effective in the world, we need to be effective in our communication with the God who has invited us into his counsel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And I pray right now that we would take seriously the power of your gospel and the invitation that has been made possible through your sacrifice to enter boldly into the throne of grace. The idea that we can influence your hand is one that almost feels irreverent or somehow not sound doctrinally like it might do some kind of damage to your sovereignty, but Lord, you'll complete and finish what you want to finish with or without us, but that doesn't change the fact that you've invited us in. Lord, I heard it wisely said that we can't stop God from accomplishing his plans, but we can actually prevent you from fulfilling all that you would want to fulfill in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be surrendered to you and that you would have complete reign over us. Lord, we confess our waywardness. We repent of the ways that we allow the voices of this 
modern age to be so influential, not only upon how we look at reality, but how we even think about you. Lord, the misconceptions, the misunderstandings, the continual stream of lies that come to us saying that we will be most happy if we keep ourselves at the center of our universes is what keeps for many of us our worlds so small. Lord, may we decrease that you might increase. And I pray that our vision for you would increase our vision for our neighbor. And Lord, that our closeness to you would reveal the sin within us that would lead us to an ever-increasing humility that you love us in spite of it, that we are forgiven not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done on our behalf. So Lord, as Nehemiah stepped into that space of intercession, may we be a people that walk so fully in the light that we can move beyond self-concern to a deep concern for your glory and for your love and for the hurting world around us. I pray that you would help us to examine where we are at with you and ask the question, Lord, if we don't feel like we know you, what is it that's keeping us from knowing you fully? Lord, may you reveal the fact that that problem lies on our side, not yours. And so, Lord, remove anything that is hindering us from seeing you. And we repent because it's your kindness that leads us to turning back to you. And we intercede on behalf of this city because we believe that you truly love the people that are here, the hurting people all around us. Help us to be witnesses to that reality. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, guys.